Shall we pray as we begin? Let's pray. Uh, Father, we do ask you for your help as we come now to look at your word. Uh, We pray that you'd give us teachable hearts. Uh, Pray that what I speak uh, would be from your word. We pray that we'd be able to evaluate it together um, and go home learning uh, what it means more to be your church. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it feels like quite a long time since we were in um, 1 Timothy last. Uh, At least a month ago, if you were here a month ago for the last session, and probably you may not have been here for that, so quite a long time. Um, It's helpful, actually, because we're in verse... 16 and 15 tonight of chapter 3, which is really the key central point in 1 Timothy. So just have a look down there with me, and you'll be able to catch up pretty quickly. Paul tells Timothy, as he starts out this message to Timothy, why he's writing. And he says, he's writing so that you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Paul wants Timothy to be able to lead this church uh, in Ephesus, that's where the church is, uh, so that it will be a kind of a pillar that promotes the saving truth, the gospel, uh, to the world. And over the past few weeks, we've been looking at various ways that Paul uh, tells Timothy to put the church in order uh, so that it will be more effective um, in reaching out to the world. We won't uh, go over those now. But where we are at the moment is an essential section of the letter where we're really thinking about what makes the heart of the church work. Uh, We're talking about the leadership of the church. A month ago, we were in chapter 3, and we saw that leadership is a noble task in the church. It's vital to the health of the church. Uh, And then we see that again um, at the end of our passage this evening. Have a look at chapter 4, verse 16. Uh, Paul tells Timothy, Watch your life and your doctrine closely. Persevere in them. Because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. You will save both yourself and your hearers. Paul tells Timothy that if he does the right things, he'll be able to save himself and he'll be able to save his hearers. What Paul's saying is that if Timothy can lead the church well, he'll enable the church to be a place where people come to be saved, where they come and hear about the gospel of Jesus and find life. So church leadership is a massive task. Um, Last time, we were looking at what to expect from a church leader's character, and we saw that they need to be above reproach in the eyes of society. So this week, uh, Paul moves on to talk about something a little bit different, and verse 6 tells us what that is. So this is why this this passage is here. Have a look at verse 6. Paul says, If you point these things out to the brothers, you will be a good minister of Christ Jesus, brought up in the truths of the faith, and of the good teaching you've followed. This passage is here to tell Timothy and the congregation that's listening into this letter what makes a good minister. It's that simple. And particularly what makes what a good minister should do. We thought about their character a month ago. This is more about what they should do, what we should expect from them. Uh, This, I think, will apply primarily to Christoph. He's our minister. Uh, We don't have any other kind of ordained ministers here. But we do have elders, and it will apply secondarily to them and also to the people on the ministry team, like Richard and Edna and myself. Just thinking more generally, you may be thinking, well, why should I listen into this? You know, we know that Christoph's planning to be here for a while. We're not planning to kind of get rid of him. We, we know we've got a good minister. Let's just move on to a more important part of Scripture. But I think we should listen to this for a few reasons. And one thing is, the kind of leaders that we have tell us what is important to us. 
Uh, an organization generally heads in the direction that its leaders are taking them in. And so as we look at what Paul says a good leader should be doing, that will actually give us a really strong sense of what our priority should be as a church. So we're not planning to replace Christoph soon, but I think there's three ways that this passage is helpful. Um, it does mean that we'll be aware, if we are moving churches or something like that, what to look for in a, in a minister of a new church. Um, it tells us what we as a congregation should hold Christoph and the elders accountable for as they lead us. Um, and then it tells us as well what we should be aiming for as they lead us as a congregation. So I hope there's plenty in this passage to help us uh, as we go through tonight. So here's our big question. What should we expect a church leader to do? Uh, what should their aims be? What should their methods be? Well, let's uh, look at the first point. Verse 6 says that Timothy needs to point something out to the brothers and sisters in the congregation. And verses 1 to 5 uh, say what that is. He should point out the danger of rejecting God's gifts. Let's have a look at verses 1 to 3. The Spirit clearly says that in later times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teaching comes from hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods, which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. There's lots of scary language there, isn't there? Deceiving spirits, demons, hot irons burning people like pokers. It's a bit of a kind of a zombie movie kind of picture. And what Paul's doing here is he's really trying to flag up the danger that's, uh, that's going on. And the danger is false teaching. Do you see that there in verse 2? These teachings that come through hypocritical liars. And Paul gives a couple of examples of what this false teaching is. Uh, these people forbid people to marry, and they order them to abstain from certain foods. Well, why is that so dangerous? Surely that's just a lifestyle choice. Well, the reason is that they are ordering people to go against what God has intended. So have a look at verse 4. Paul says that everything God created is good. That's Genesis 1, isn't it? God said X, and he created it. And he said it was good. The whole universe, God said it was good. God has created a good universe for us. And the fall doesn't change that. Everything God created is good. And so, nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. God created everything good, and he gave it to us. It's a gift from him. And so we now are to live in his world in relationship with him. We receive the gifts that he's given us and thank him for them. We live in relationship with him. And so if there's something that God's made, and we're able in good conscience to thank him for it, we shouldn't be declaring it off-limits for Christians. It's something he's given us to enjoy. So, for example, taking the example Paul gives, if someone says that marriage is a kind of a less spiritual thing for Christians, something that means that you're not really a great Christian if you decide to get married, well, that's actually really dangerous because it's kind of rejecting God's good gift of marriage uh, rather than receiving it with thanks. It's kind of shoving it back in God's face and saying, we don't want that gift, thanks. Now, it's not wrong uh, to choose not to get married, but it is wrong to teach that you shouldn't get married, that it's some kind of plan B for Christians, the ones who aren't really that great. So imagine it's um, Christmas morning. We know that Christmas is coming up in a few months. And mum and dad have got a whole range of presents under the tree. 
Um, They're a bit sleepy uh, on Christmas morning, but they're looking forward to seeing you and your brothers and sisters open up the presents. But your older brother this year, he's a bit annoying, and he decides uh, that he's going to carve off a quarter of the pile of presents and says, we're only allowed to open these presents at the moment. He says, mum and dad will be really annoyed with us if we, if we open any of the other presents. And mum and dad are sitting there, and they're like, John, shut up, that's ridiculous. They can't believe that John is denying the brothers and sisters all these wonderful presents that they've brought them. It's really insulting to the parents that John's saying, mum and dad don't really want us to have these things. And that's a bit like what was happening in Ephesus. Teachers in the church were sort of carving off bits of God's world and saying, you can enjoy that, um, but you're going to be less of a good Christian if you get married or if you eat certain foods or you do this kind of thing. They were kind of creating a division between the sacred, the stuff that was holy, that was uh, good for kind of special Christians, and the world, a sort of dirty thing that might contaminate you if you, if you did the wrong thing. But have a look at verse 5. Paul says, Everything is consecrated by the word of God and by prayer. Everything is consecrated. That means it's, it's made holy. And it's made holy by two things. By the word of God. I think that means the word that says it's all good when he created it. And by prayer. I think that's our response as we receive it and say thanks to God for it. Those two things make everything holy. Everything is holy. It's not just like there's special good things that we should do as Christians and kind of dirty, horrible things that might contaminate us. Everything God created is good. And so a good minister should point out the danger of rejecting these good gifts from God or teaching others to do that. So what does this mean for us? Well, I don't think it's my job to tell you guys not to drink. Now, you can choose not to drink, and you might be wise not to. But I shouldn't tell you that or imply that if you do drink, you're kind of a plan B Christian who hasn't really cottoned on to what it takes to be a good Christian. I I guess many of us here would probably agree uh, with that. But in the same way, I probably think I shouldn't also tell you to, uh, I shouldn't tell you not to smoke or imply that you're a bad Christian if I catch you smoking and having a quick ciggy one day. Um, And how about this? I shouldn't tell you not to buy a fur coat. Now, we're probably thinking, we want to be ethical and all that kind of thing. Great. But God clothed Adam and Eve in animal skins, so it can't be that bad. But we do kind of... Have you ever caught yourself looking down at the nose if someone's kind of wearing a bit of fur? You think, oh, goodness, I wonder if that came from a clubbed seal or something. But everything God created is good. We need to be very careful that we don't create plan A Christians and plan B Christians just because of what stuff people use. So beware any kind of Christianity, more broadly, um, that means you can't be a fully godly Christian and just live a normal nine-to-five job uh, with kids, with work, with friends, with food. That just kind of normal kind of life. The kind of life that means you have to take out the recycling and work out which bits go in which box. That's all good. Remember that the trajectory the gospel takes us on doesn't kind of take us out of the world to be kind of some kind of holy people that float around. It actually restores creation to us, the good world that God made, and enables us to live rightly in it, now that we're in a right relationship with God. Now, briefly, we might say, okay, does this mean it's okay to kind of use drugs and that kind of thing? I don't think the Bible's clear. It does seem that we should look after our bodies, and we shouldn't lose our self-control. But ultimately, it's more of a question about our relationship with God. 
Can we receive this from God with thanksgiving, with a clear conscience? So, for example, take cannabis. That's got medical uses, hasn't it? So cannabis is not evil. It's how you use cannabis. It's can you do it in relationship with God, living um, out of a relationship with him? And that's something that each of us will need to decide. Well, you might think that's quite a liberal line to take. I can see a few furry brows out there. <laughs> um, but we've got, can, I, I'm staying it like that because I hope we need to see we've got to be aware of calling off parts of God's creation and say Christians don't, that's not really for Christians. Well, uh, Martin Luther in the Reformation times saw the dangers that were being warned of here very clearly. Um, and typically for Martin Luther, he kind of slightly overstates his point, but he makes it very memorably. So let me read a quote to you from him. He says, Whenever the devil harasses you, seek the company of men, or drink more, or joke and talk nonsense, or do some other merry thing. Sometimes we must drink more, sport, recreate ourselves, or even sin a little to spite the devil, so that we leave him no place for troubling our consciences with trifles. We are conquered if we try too conscientiously not to sin at all. So when the devil says to you, do not drink, answer him, I will drink, and write freely, just because you tell me not to. Now, he's overstating his point, isn't he? You know, it's not that we would deliberately choose to sin. But we are free in Christ. And there's a way of kind of being too nitty-gritty about do this, don't do this, that denies that and actually misses the point that we're in a relationship with God and he's created everything to be received with thanksgiving. I've been challenged personally um, by this passage to think it's not my job to imply that living a normal Christian life is somehow not, not spiritual. You know the kind of pressure that there can sometimes be to be involved in more and more church activities. Well, if we're creating that pressure or if we're feeling that pressure, there's a sign that something's gone wrong. Church should not be a sort of special holy category that just takes place uh, on Sundays or, or when the discipleship group meets or if you're baking cakes for the fellowship group. All of life is church in the sense that all of life is living out of relationship with God whether we're together or apart. Everything God created is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. Why don't we take a couple of minutes now to do something a little bit crazy? Um, why don't we just celebrate some of God's good gifts? Um, why don't we just turn where we are and just share a few things that God has given you today that you've enjoyed and appreciated, and I'll draw us together in a moment. Okay, uh, draw us back together there. Heard a few good things. We were talking about coffee in our group. That would be something that we enjoy. I'm probably a little bit too reliant on it, actually. I need to possibly watch that. But anyway, uh, okay, let's move on to the second point. We've kind of seen the negative side of things. A good minister points out the danger of telling people to reject God's good gifts. Um, here's, here's a positive side. Um, a good minister promotes living out of relationship with God. We've already talked a little bit about this, but let's see it a little bit more clearly. Uh, have a look. At verse 7, Paul says, Have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. This is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. If you've been with us over the past few months, you'll have got to hear that these trustworthy sayings are the kind of key statements that Paul really wants to underline and that we need to take to heart as we study 1 Timothy. And I think the trustworthy saying is verse 8, 
Physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things. So it's about godliness. Some older translations would say piety for that word. I wonder, just have a think in your heads, how would you define godliness or piety as those words come up? Personally, I think I'm quite prone to defining godliness uh, and hearing somebody quite saintly, almost translucent, uh, who, who, who's very detached from the world and spends all their time praying and giving to the poor. Is that, is that the kind of perception you might have of, of piety or somebody who's godly? Well, if that's how we think, we've actually subtly sucked in the kind of teaching that Paul's been warning us against. Look again at the saying. Paul says that godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. Godliness is something that enables us to live rightly in the world now, as well as in the future, in the life to come. And we can see where it comes from in verse 10. Paul says, For this we labour and strive, that we have put our hope in the living God, who is the saviour of all men, and especially those who believe. Godliness comes from putting our hope in God, our saviour. Now, there's a bit of an odd bit there. You might have noticed it at the end of the verse. Paul says God is the saviour of all men, especially those who believe. What, what does that mean? Well, we already know that God wants all people to be saved. You can see that in chapter 2, verse 4. Uh, and Paul's doing that thing where he's reminding the church in Ephesus that it's not just about them, and they're not just some kind of special spiritual elite, but actually God wants to save everyone. But you might think, okay, but he's, he's saying that he's now, gonna, he's now actually going to save everyone. Well, not quite, because Paul does say... God is the saviour especially of those who believe. So I think what Paul's saying is God is the saviour of all in the sense that he's the only way that somebody could be saved. He's the only person who's created them, and so he's the only person who can save them. But it's only the people who believe who actually are saved and will actually join God in the new creation. Okay, I hope that gets that out of the way. Uh, But the big point is that godliness comes from setting our hope in the living God, who gives life to everyone. Godliness, then, is living life out of that relationship, that central hope that you've placed in God. And Paul does a contrast with physical training, doesn't he, at the start of the verse. He says, physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things. Physical training's great, isn't it? Going to the gym, that's a really good thing. Uh, I know Richard's recently uh, joined the gym. Um, And that's great. You know, well done, Richard. He'll look after his body. That'll be good. But the thing is, that won't solve uh, anyone's spiritual problem going to the gym. It's physical training. It's not going to help with our godliness. But the false teachers were making a similar mistake. They were looking to the solution to our spiritual problem in things of this world. They were thinking, if we just don't get married, or if we just don't eat the sort of wrong food, we'll actually be more spiritual. But it's a kind of a category mistake. It's not the right thing to be asking about. Godliness is this kind of a different dimension. It's not about stuff. It's about our relationship with God. And and when we have that relationship with God right, that will involve an increasingly right living now in this world, the world that he's created, and in the life to come, in the new world that he will recreate one day. Um, A commentator called Wainwright defines godliness Uh, like this. He says it's one's true desires, values, and passions, as indicated in every relationship and activity, 
uh, being fixed on the person of God who is experienced through a spiritual relationship in the heart. I think that's very helpful. Godliness is not about kind of being apart from the world. It's about our relationship with God. It's a different thing entirely. You don't become godly by going on a diet. Well, we need help with that, don't we, to to pursue our relationship with God. And that's where our minister comes in. Have a look at verse 11. Paul says to Timothy, command and teach these things. A good minister teaches other people about godliness. They promote this kind of God-centered life. And Paul says in verse 10, that is what he labors and strives for. He says to Timothy, you need to train yourself for this. It's going to be hard work. It involves sacrifice and commitment. So when we're thinking about spiritual growth and maturity, the kind of image we should be thinking about is is a gym, but a kind of a spiritual gym, a, a gym where we kind of pump the iron in order to place our relationship with God more and more at the center of our life. It takes work, but that's what we're aiming to do. And a good minister, well, they essentially would turn our church into a kind of godliness gym, where we're all kind of encouraged to pump iron and we're kind of seeing how that goes and we're comparing tips on how to do it better. We're all working on putting God more and more at the centre of our lives. Now that doesn't mean that we'll stop being normal people. I think that's how we often think about that. What Paul's saying is it means we'll be normal people who do everything out of relationship with God. In our last point, we're going to think a little bit about what that means practically. Um, how, would, how would a good minister actually go about doing that? Um, but I wanted to ask us a question um, in a moment, and maybe just now, and have a bit of a brainstorm. What would our church look like um, if it was to become more of a godliness gym? How could we encourage each other to kind of pump iron and pursue that relationship with God more? Just brainstorm, share some ideas, try and apply some of this idea that we, should, as a church, should be training ourselves for godliness. Okay, very good. Let's come back together. Um, I won't take feedback on that, but do come and tell me if you had any like, crafty ideas for how we could be a b- bit more of a gym uh, later. Let's move on now and just have a look at the final thing um, that we should be looking for in a good minister. Um, and that is, uh, in verses 12 to 16, they should give themselves wholly to God's means. They should kind of commit themselves wholly, 100%, to God's means. Have a look at verses 15 and 16. Timothy, be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Paul's telling Timothy that he needs to be diligent and persevere and give himself wholly to just two things. Watching his life and his doctrine, his teaching. And there's a great promise there at the end, isn't there? If you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. I think that's all any minister wants to hear, to be honest. If they can just commit themselves to doing a couple of things faithfully, they'll save themselves and their hearers. Well, those two things, then, are going to be the focus of Timothy's ministry. Um, And they are the means that God has given ministers uh, to pursue. If they want to be leading a church, that means that people can come and know Christ through it, that saves people. If ministers do this job, then the church will be that pillar and foundation of the truth that promotes the gospel to the world. Now, again, there's no sense that these things are easy. Um, Timothy would need to labor and watch and persevere. 
And so that means that a minister who does these things is actually saying that they've placed their hope in God. A godly minister will give themselves to these two things that God has said that they should be doing in their ministry. So here's how to tell if your minister is serious about promoting godliness. Does he watch his life and his doctrine closely? Let's see those things fleshed out. Firstly, the life. Have a look at verse 12. Um, Paul says, Timothy, don't let anyone look down on you because you're young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in life, in love, in faith, and in purity. So the congregation shouldn't be looking at things like Timothy's age to work out if he's suitable uh, for ministry. They should be looking at whether he can provide them with an example of godliness. So presumably we should be wary of kind of adding additional qualifications for ministry. Um, like, do, does somebody have a professional qualification or do they have a degree and that kind of thing? We should be asking, can this person set us an example in the kind of godliness gym? And we need to remember as well as we look at this stuff to do with lifestyle, that it's not perfection that Paul's talking about. He's talking about progress. See that there in verse 15? He says, so that everyone may see your progress. So the minister should be a kind of a godliness gym rat. They should be in there, you know, working on this all the time. They don't necessarily have to have the biggest guns. They don't have to have the biggest muscles. But they do need to be committed to working on it. They should be setting an example in how diligent they are on growing in godliness. And as we see that, as we kind of come into the gym and see how seriously the the leadership of the church takes growing in godliness, we'll be inspired to, to keep working on it ourselves. Now, in our situation, there's no way that all of us will know our our main minister, Christoph, well enough uh, or closely enough to learn uh, loads from his example. We'll see a bit on Sundays. Um, But what this is saying is that he should know a few people really well who will pick up his example. Um, And they should then know the rest of us well enough so that we can learn from their example. And that's the model that Kirkpatrick leadership are trying to implement. The idea is that Christoph and the elders pump iron together, and then the elders and the discipleship groups pump iron together, and so it ripples out uh, into the rest of the congregation and into the community. Okay, let's have a look at the teaching side of things. That's verse 13. Uh, Paul says, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching and to teaching. So if you haven't got an apostle around, how do you hear God's word? well, you make sure that you preach the Bible. You read through it, and you preach it and teach it. And that is how godliness will be promoted in a congregation. And you can see he says, devote yourself. Again, it's hard work. It's not something that comes naturally. I know that personally, it's always tempting to take shortcuts in ministry, to just sort of tell somebody something, because I think it's true, and not really show them or teach them from the Bible what God is saying to them. Um, But that's slightly dangerous, because then it means that people are depending on me rather than really hearing things from the Bible. And Paul's calling for the kind of commitment to the Scriptures that will build a church slowly but surely as the Spirit takes those words and applies them to people. So Paul says, devote yourself to this slow business of teaching the Bible to people. Trust God that that will be the way that your church grows and matures. Um, A brief comment on verse 14, uh, in case anyone's wondering. That sounds mysterious. I think it's just saying that 
uh, Timothy needs to remember that he's been given the task of leading the church um, when the body of elders, that's the presbytery for any uh, keen Presbyterians, um, laid their hands on you. So Timothy was ordained as a church leader by a wider body of church leaders, and Timothy needs to remember that. And so the message of that verse and the whole section is very clear, isn't it? It's urging Timothy to give himself wholly uh, to using God's means of promoting godliness, being an example to people and teaching them from God's word. Be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Okay, I've got another question for us as we try and chew on this a little bit together. Uh, The question is, if this is what a minister should give himself wholly to, those two things, what what should he not do? What expectations might we have of ministers that perhaps we think actually that's not really part of those two things? Maybe chew on that for a couple of minutes. Interesting to take a little bit of feedback on this one. Um, Pop a hand up in the air if you'd like to share something that your little group was discussing. And Richard's got a microphone. He's not the manager or the administrator of the church. Thanks. That's very helpful, isn't it? There's a huge tendency for administration to take over what a church leader does. Um, and that doesn't, there, there does seem to be a sense that you know, he does need to lead the church, and that will require some element of that, but it, that's not his main job. Yeah, I think that's helpful. Yeah. Any other thoughts? Martin, was, Martin had something. He's got to be prepared to be seen as human. Mm-hmm. Can, you, can you expand on that a little bit? <laughs> well, I hope. <laughs> um, I just think in, in Northern Ireland here, we're probably prone to set Christian people on a pedestal. And uh, we're prone to try to portray this image of perfection, you know, to the world outside, which is unreal, and they can't identify with, and it just doesn't work. Yeah, we need to treat church leaders as normal human beings. They're not some kind of person over here who's so high and mighty that they, they, they're real people who are growing in godliness like all of us. That, yeah, that's very helpful. Any other thoughts? Oh, Jane. Um, I just think that for church uh, leaders that they need to be provided with some sort of space so they don't get burnt out. Mm -hmm. So maybe into sort of the annual timetable, there should be time for them just to get a day away um, to spend some time reading the Bible and just for rest and regeneration and refreshment. Yeah, They need to work on their own godliness, don't they? It's very easy if you're a leader to be kind of be giving all the time, but it's very important that they train themselves to be godly. Yeah. And we need to make space, we need to actually say, we're going to let you be away from us for about a time if you need that. Yeah. Um, a couple of reflections just from me, uh, just to finish. Um, preaching, just, preaching seems like a very public thing to do, but actually a good preaching requires a lot of private work behind the scenes. And it requires a lot of times that you don't pick up the phone when it seems to be quite urgent. You know, you have to really study and get into the text and think about the congregation in order to preach well. And it's so tempting, I find, to get involved in more immediate, more quick, quick things to do. Um, it was very tempting for me to watch the rugby this afternoon, I can tell you that. Um, but ministers need encouragement to keep working at preaching well. It may mean that you see a bit less of them or that they're not always there for you, but this is the thing that they've been asked to do. 
And similarly, passing on godliness. They need encouragement to do that. Often, as, as Martin was saying, the, the tendency can be for ministers to be over here somewhere and the rest of the congregation are over here and there's not much interaction of lives. And if there is going to be that kind of interaction and that passing on of godliness, that is going to mean that ministers do a little bit less of something or other, isn't it? And we need to, we need to really engage with that and think, maybe, is there something about our church setup that might mean that ministers can't really devote themselves to these two things? I know, actually, at Kirkpatrick, there is a real culture of this. Um, I know that you guys are aware that it won't always be Christoph who calls round to see you if you are going to hospital. Um, you've been willing to lose a couple of Sunday evenings so that Christoph and the elders can meet together to uh, train for godliness. Um, and you've been willing uh, to, uh, to know that the elders will be able to spend time on the other Sunday evening leading their groups. You know that you may well organise a very worthy event for, for a great cause, and Christoph might not be around. And you've accepted that, because you know that he's trying to give himself to these two things. You've encouraged him to train people to be godly. And so keep going with that, I would say. That is a really commendable thing. Um, Christoph has actually lent me a, a book recently called Going Deep. It's all about basically training people for this idea of godliness, about placing people's hope more and more in God. And the author, it's written as a kind of a fictional account of how the author realises that if he's going to do this as a pastor of a church, he actually needs to give himself, not to kind of managing a massive staff team and loads of administration and seeing loads of people a little bit of a time in the week, he actually needs to give himself to a few people really deeply. Um, and there's a, they, they go to a kind of church leaders meeting where they talk about this. Um, and his wife says this to the pastor, She says, they're getting the message. There's a spirit of agreement in the room. Just make sure they realise that this great idea implies a whole new approach to pastoral leadership. You can't get serious about this if they expect you to continue doing all the other things you've always been doing. This is something new. Well, it's something new, and it's also something old. Paul says, train yourself and your congregation to be godly. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. Let me lead us in a prayer. Father, thank you that you have given your church people to lead us. Thank you that as they do that, they can equip us so that we can be the kind of church that does mean that people are saved. We praise you that your plan is to work through us uh, despite our failings. And Father, we thank you for giving us uh, Christoph and other faithful ministers um, down through the years. And Father, we pray that we as a congregation would be ones who support them as they seek to labour and strive uh, to encourage us to set our hope on you more and more. We pray that we'd be a church that does that. In Jesus' name, amen.